This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? 9.35 a.m. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. It is Friday the 31st of March. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Wang Xiaoning and Philip C. This is WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week, as well as other news tidbits that you may have missed. Our goal is to usher you into the weekend full of interesting facts and anecdotes and um, news that you can discuss with whoever you meet. Yeah, so you can give everyone the impression that you're just so well informed well learned build your fountain of irrelevant knowledge <laughs> yes got it which is what the morning run is all about <laughs> let's uh, dive into it because i think one of the biggest stories this week has been news coming from alibaba the fact that alibaba is going to undergo a major restructuring breaking up into six business units most of them with their own ipo potential investors were were really happy about this i think it sent alibaba stock up at least 10% on the announcement um which is good news for them. Yeah, so, so, so those six groups, uh, one is the Taobao, second, Cloud Intelligence, third, Local Services, which is the food delivery, fourth, Digital Commerce, then the first one is China, and then the Digital Media Entertainment Group. For me, it's very interesting because we've always had this conversation about portfolio conglomerates. It's a time to break up conglomerates. But the one that's interesting about this one is that many of these entities are quite interconnected. Mm. And so to break it up, it's very different from what we always understand as a classic conglomerate, which are very separate entities. There's quite a lot of synergy here, right, among the six entities, no? I think it's worthy of a breakup because nonetheless, there's always going to be what they call the holding company discount, right, which is at least 10%. Yeah. Uh, I think the process of splitting it up may not be so simple because like you, you know, fair point, they are more interconnected than a traditional conglomerate. But it is possible. It is possible. Sure and then you is. can unlock value. Se- secondly, it may be easier to manage because you've got six separate divisions with six separate CEOs who will be then given six separate sets of KPIs. Um, so I see some positives from there. Generally, I'm not a big fan of huge companies to get messy to manage and difficult to control. Fair point. I think that's where it gets very interesting where, you know, in this part of the world, everybody is creating all these super apps or these things which are retailing everybody in this house. So at what point will the you know, penny drop and say, oh, maybe there's time to monetize certain parts of that function then. We did speak to Brock Silvers earlier this week. He's the CEO of Kaiyuan Capital and he was the bear in the room really mm. on this idea. He he had a, he still has doubts on whether um, the, I guess, rationale for breaking up has been um, uh, clearly articulated, you know, it, or is this really just a response to Beijing's crackdown on tech in which he says then it doesn't really make as much sense or it's not really for for longer term value in a way it's sort of a short so the motivation response. isn't business but politics is that what his point was that's one of his concerns mm. yes okay so its motivation might be political but its benefit is twofold it's not just political but for me also business and if i'm hong kong or the shanghai composite index i'll be rubbing my hands with glee right <sighs> for sure because i'm thinking who at least five six ipos might materialize from this exercise i think early uh, overnight we did see news that china the um, please correct me if i'm saying that name wrong but that's the logistics arm of alibaba they're already putting out feelers for mm. a potential ipo so yes there is a lot of activity that could result from this which would make stock markets very happy yeah um, you know, the other thing is then who else is going to follow suit? 
Right? right? It's Alibaba. Okay, Alibaba put up their hands. They're getting rid of their 70 thieves. Is it 70 thieves? Alibaba and the 70 thieves? 40. 40, sorry, I get the number. <laughs> you, you doubled the number you of just, thieves. Just <laughs> randomly put up the number 70. <laughs> and what's the magic word to open the cave? But never mind. Open sesame! <laughs> yeah, okay, so all this is happening at the Alibaba. But who else is going to follow suit? Is it going to be Tencent? Ah, dang, dang, dang. Yes, I think that's where I, I think it's very interesting. Right? When you break up these things, and again, the same question you bring back again to Alphabet here where you have Google and then, of course, they add all these little things to it and then they have their venture investment funds. Mm. At what point they become successful? At what point do you spin it off? I think that's the broader question, especially now. We always think about it as a classic conglomerate, but now when you bring it into the tech sector, how then does that manifest itself? Once it's again, small is beautiful. Smaller, says, smaller. Says the petite person in the room. <laughs> Who is cock-eye and cannot drive a truck. Smaller is beautiful. That's relative. All right. From China, let's turn our attention over to what's been happening in Israel. Because there has been a lot of movement there. Uh, there have been protests ongoing against a judicial reform that the government is proposing. These protests have been running for months. And it came to a head earlier this week um, after uh, Benjamin Netanyahu fired his defense minister for commenting against that reform proposal that galvanized protesters even more and it did result in the government backtracking on mm. this somewhat. I think, you know, I needed a bit of a history lesson in terms of what, in terms of what were all these protests about because it hadn't been going on since, what, the beginning of the year? It's not a new thing. So basically the Netanyahu government wants to give itself more control over the appointment of judges, including those who sit on the Supreme Court. It also wants to strip much of that court's power to review parliamentary decisions. And what has complicated this issue is the fact that um, his ability to be in power is very much because he has got a very messy coalition. And part of that messy coalition is the right wing who want this to happen. Uh, so Israeli society very divided. The protests have become even more, yeah. I guess, bigger and more violent uh, over the coming week, there's, over the past few weeks. There's also the added complication that Netanyahu himself is facing corruption charges. He is undergoing trial and could ultimately benefit from these changes um, if it goes through. Mm. So there's so many layers to it. So if he doesn't get it done, will it end his government? Because he does need the support of all these right wing parties, right? Especially. Uh, I think they ha they they really want these reforms to go through. Whether not reforms, I'm but trying to understand what changes. their logic is because wouldn't we all, as you know, Democrats, want a independent judiciary? Isn't that what we always want and expect? Oh, Philip, the dreamer Am once I again. The Am I the naive person yes. in the room here that we think that it's very important to have an independent judiciary? And I'm wondering what is the pushback against that? Because the independent judiciary might rule against you and one day say that you have been a bad leader. You mean like the and conversations we had just now about MACC? in jail for corruption right. or illegal practices? Well, I mean, I think the government is saying that they're not trying to detract from the democracy. They're saying that they're trying to make a true democracy. By a by what? By like, giving parliament the primacy over the judiciary or of some sort. I don't know. Um, but don't forget Netanyahu has only delayed this move. It isn't off the table entirely. Um, so it remains to be seen where this is going to go uh, moving forward. So that's one of those things to watch. And I guess it's the, really the scale of protest in Israel. Mm -hmm. Some have likened it to uh, the Arab Spring 
Spring, calling it the Israeli Spring. Um, I really wish that we'd see these same protests for the Palestinian cause in Israel, but I guess we're nowhere near there as yeah. yet. Very interesting contrast you talk about, you know, that, that he's trying to deal with domestic issues when in reality, actually, he's actually been dealing with a long-standing conflict. And perhaps many will say that uh, Mr. Netanyahu has been the one that's been propag- propagating that conflict for a very long time, especially with the Palestinian side. Yep. All right. Uh, very quickly, shall we talk about Trump? I mean, we did mention it earlier this morning, but maybe not everybody knows. Guess what? Trump might be, well, he's going to be wearing an orange little robe, get his photo taken and his thumbprint taken. He may not have to wear that orange jumpsuit. But, I love uh, that orange apparently jumpsuit. Apparently, authorities are negotiating with his lawyers for his surrender sometime next week. And we've been talking about this uh, for the past two weeks, I believe, uh, that Trump may be indicted. I think now the decision is pretty final. We are going to see him indicted. Um, and then it's a question of what happens to his presidential run. I mean, what's very interesting is that we're indicting the, the charges against him and this, the the specifics of this case, right? Because this is in related to hush money payments made, right, to this adult filmmaker, porn star called Stormy Daniels, right, in 2016. I mean, of all the things he's being charged that's for, right. this is the one, this that, is sticks. The one that sticks. I find that hilarious that it's related to a porn star. And what you would think would not be a big deal turned out to be the biggest deal because I think it has, you know, this is like a zombie case, they call it, because it's been going on for so long. It, it like happens, doesn't happen, doesn't happen, and finally indicted, okay? Uh, I think it's because it, there is just so much documentary evidence against Trump uh, of which uh. there were these checks he paid to his Michael Cohen who paid off Stormy Daniels. So... Michael Cohen paid Swami Daniels and then Trump paid Michael Cohen back. And there's these checks, these physical checks. So, I mean, how do you dispute that? Yeah, so I find it so interesting that because of the frivolity and the ability that, you know, it involves celebrity and social media, you get all this evidence easily built up against him. Imagine then for the other cases where you don't see so much, where it's more opaque then. But just imagine he is the <laughs> ex-president of the United States and is now running for president again. Right. Uh, so, you know, the theoretically can be convicted and still be president of the United States because apparently all you need to do is be 35 years old and above and a citizen of the United States, Why born not? in the United Why States. Why not play the martyr? Oh my goodness. I am curious to see how much this will actually galvanize his support base yes. for the presidential race. Already we see that the top Republicans, including Mike Pence, including Kevin McCarthy, they have all called uh, out in support of uh, President Trump. They've criticized these actions. The Democrats, on the other hand, have taken the opposite view, of course. And to me, this just points to to in deepening polarization between the political uh, landscape. Personally, I think the Republicans didn't want this because they would rather dispense of him through the electoral process. Now you've galvanized his base. They are energized. They're going to come and I think wreck havoc on the Republican base. So I think if I were the Republicans, I wouldn't have won this case to have surfaced anyway because he's just strengthening his core base and they will turn out to vote. So any fringe party, especially when you get into the Republican Party, where the right wing is actually more important than the broader public, it's hard, right? It's just very hard. So I don't think any of them want this case to take place. Well, I'm sure this is going to be fodder for discussion for many, many weeks to come. Uh, We're coming up to 9.47am. We'll take a quick break, but uh, we'll continue our discussions of the top stories this week, focusing more on the local front when we come back. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. 
Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. It's 9.48 a.m. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Wong Xiaoning. Now, earlier, just before the break, we were talking about uh, Donald Trump heading to the courts. Uh, let's take a look at some of the court cases that are getting uh, attention this morning. They will be in court today, one of them being the judicial review of uh, Datuk Sri Najib Raza's SRC international decision. So the federal court will be deciding whether his application of judicial review um, can be preceded. Apparently, he's arrived at the court already for the review. Ooh, is this the final, 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 final step in the whole legal process? <laughs> well, it's, been, it's been ongoing for quite a while, right? Dot, 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 that's all I can say. I mean, for this case, I know he's got other yeah. cases ongoing. So, yes, what happens is if the uh, Apex Court does not dismiss the review bid, meaning that his judicial review is approved or it goes through, um, it could also order for a retrial of the case before a new high court judge mm. or a rehearing of his appeal before a fresh federal court bench. So those are the avenues if the judicial review passes. If the judicial review does not go through, I suppose that would be the end of the road So he for serves him. his sentence. And perhaps wait for that uh, royal pardon. So if just at a, all it comes. If at all it comes. So I think just to get some context to the timelines, I think in July 2020, he was convicted right at high court for abuse of power, money laundering and criminal breach of trust, right, amounting to about 42 million ringgit. He then went to the Court of Appeal and that was dismissed on December 2021. He then went to the Federal Court, I think then it was also dismissed then. So this is a reappeal, correct? It's a judicial review of, of the Federal Court. Court Appeal. Yes. Correct. Uh, or, of, yes. <laughs> and now he's basically, he's now actually just only about six months into his 12-year prison term because he got imprisoned, I think, August 23rd last year. So really, it's only a six-month sentence so far. So far. And he has already been acquitted of um, one of the 1MDB trials. Uh, th- that was for the um, audit report one. Um, so we'll see. This is far from over. The saga still continues. We'll be talking about this for many weeks to come. Uh, but another uh, case that has garnered a lot of attention is the Basika Laja case uh, that is involving Sam Kating. Today, the Court of Appeal will be hearing her appeal against her conviction and a six-year jail sentence for alleged reckless or dangerous driving, uh, which was claimed to have resulted in the uh, death of eight teenagers back in 2017. Yeah, this case has been ongoing for the longest time, right? And I think it also highlights... Questions about road safety and these the the whole bi- bicycle large up right. I mean, mm. the danger of all this that's happening. I mean, let's hope we get an outcome so this can. Oh. Yes, it has been a very divisive a, case, yeah. um, given that there, in terms of blame, it, it's not really clear that uh, the entire blame that Sam Keting can actually be blamed for it. You know, yes. she was I mean, the responsible about, driver. Yeah, questions about why were these children out on the street uh, at night, late at night, with no lights on these r- modified bicycles going at extremely fast speeds. Yeah, just to give you some context, the incident took place actually in JB at 3.20 in the morning, yeah, mm-hmm. on February the 18th. And of course, as you were saying, sadly, eight teenagers uh, were killed in the incident, all aged between 13 to 16. So again, many questions about even their presence at 3 in the morning at that time. All right. Well, another news that came up over the past few days is the change of uh, chief minister down south in Malacca. Uh, we have Sulaiman uh, Muhammad Ali resigning for health reasons, it appears. And Amno uh, is nominating Datuk Rauf Yusof as the new chief minister. He had been rumoured to t- be taking over this role during the uh, Malacca state elections last year time, but uh, that didn't really come about. Uh, Seems that he is finally getting uh, elevated to that role now. 
What's with this revolving door of Malacca chief ministers? I mean, they're supposed to serve their full five-year term. What's happening here? Why do they you keep on... He was sick. On? He wasn't well. He was sick, That's right? The but that was also the case for the previous one. Uh, and who's replacing him? I think it's uh, Datuk Ralph, right? That's yes, right. Um, he is the Tanjung Bidara Assembly. But they're all Amno men. They are Amno men, correct. So what's happening within Amno then? So uh, earlier this Sorry, I'm week, being blunt. <laughs> <laughs> well, earlier this week, Zahid uh, hinted that a new unity government could be formed in Malacca. Um, but how is it different from the current government? And they all kind of getting together. The anyway? state, the state government in Malacca, they didn't win it under a unity government ah, for portfolio. sure, for sure. But so, are they cooperating? Yeah. Well, that's where I think it's very interesting, Does right? Because if you look at the numbers at the Malacca State Legislative Assembly, I mean, there are about 28 seats, right? And BN has a really large majority there, 21. Bagan Harapan is about five. So I don't think it's an issue about opposition trying to wrest control. I mean, it's, it, it's really, not a Sabah incident. It's no. not a Sabah. I, well, that's dot, dot, dot again. Mm-hmm. But that's the question, right? It's I suspect some form of, if it's not health, or if health is the veneer to give the excuse, of, of some infighting taking place within BN because the numbers in PH or PN don't really move the needle here. The other thing is, aren't you actually, I mean, it's okay, yes, you didn't go for the state elections, This, um, you're not a unity government, but aren't you really, in essence, a unity government already even at the state level when you are cooperating at the federal level? Well, I think that's... I mean, that, are you like trying to like split hairs here? That's always the debate, right? That whether or not federal government is reflected or manifested at the state level. Sometimes we hear... We've heard that so many times before that, you know, even at the election campaigning, state can do their own thing, whereas federal will try and do their own thing. So there's always the disconnect taking place. But I agree with you, the assessment that we should actually, by theory, have it all aligned. It's part of that um, tapestry of political, um, I guess, our political tapestry. <laughs> there's just so many <laughs> but the problem angles is, to it. So is, this, is this tapestry looking beautiful or just a hot mess? There's some patches of colour mismatch, I suppose. And, yeah. you it's know, like my dog goes in and poo-poo all over my Iranian carpet. Okay, I'm not sure that's the right analogy. Like, image analogy okay. I want, but it's a it, you know politics never easy. Let us uh, roll over to what's been happening in terms of foreign policy. We have seen uh, the prime minister conduct uh, several trips over the course of just a week. He was in Saudi Arabia not too long ago, followed by a one-day visit to Cambodia, and uh, this week he's ending his week in China, uh, where he is making his first visit as the prime minister. So a lot of attention is going to be on this. He's accompanied by an entourage of ministers. Uh, so everyone's waiting to see what are the announcements that, that will come from this visit. I mean, the big one was, of course, his pledge to basically reopen a Belt and Road. I think for, for Malaysia, this, it stands to benefit a lot from uh, a revival of Belt and Road because we do need that infrastructure support, I think, for rail and public and, and ports infrastructure. I'm not so fond of that project, I have to say. I, I always want to see the numbers, right, whether there's a multiplier effect and whether really from what we pay, what we really get value from it. But that's another decision, another discussion for another day, right, involving numbers. Uh, but let's just talk about his so-called PAC itinerary because he flew into Hainan Island, which is my homeland, by the way. And then he flies, uh, he's, I think, in Beijing. Beijing, yeah. So he apparently is going to have a courtesy visit tomorrow with Chinese President Xi Jinping in the Great Hall of the People, where they'll be discussing partnership on trade and political cooperation and exchanging views on the current international landscape. Now, President Xi Jinping doesn't have an excuse for Ramadan, right? So I think he will be turning up. 
Uh, yeah, I hopefully no so. No clash of schedules there, right? <laughs> I think uh, on the Chinese side, uh, it's a very well-oiled um, machine and very well-oiled itinerary. Um, so yes, hopefully we'll be seeing what they uh, what they discuss and the points coming up from that Important. conversation. Important. China is our major trading partner. Yeah, but I think it's in the same way. I think China will also view Southeast Asia as very, very important. I think we are at this stage where if you see the rest of the world, they kind of have stacked themselves up to where they support with respect to US and China. I think Southeast Asia has smartly positioned itself as neutral, as a party in this whole conversation. And so I think it's also in China's interest to build great relationship over at Southeast Asia. Okay, we're getting a tweet from Free Malaysia today. Apparently the Apex Court has rejected Najib's bid to review the SRC conviction sentence. So that will hold and he will remain in jail for the next 11 and a half years. Unless, uh, you know... For um, good behaviour. Yeah. <laughs> we would only expect that from him, right? All right. So that is, I think that's a great place to perhaps bring the conversation on WTF to a close. But what, one more news, one more news, guys. You know, let's talk about the 81 bonds. Mm. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, the banking crisis all like the last two weeks while I was away. I missed the hot news. But very quickly, Bank Nagara, of course, issued their annual report uh, earlier this week. Um, financial system, all okay. No problem with the banks. Household debt, a bit of an issue. Guys, we're borrowing too much money. We're not earning enough money. Uh, we just are too low. I think I've kind of summed it up. GDP growth uh, on, on in progress. Some headwinds facing. But this is the interesting bit. Uh, Bank Nagara has basically come out to say that um, if you, our banks firstly don't rely very much on AT1 capital. Uh, and in the first place, we're going to keep to the traditional packing order in which they rank higher than uh, equity uh, shareholders because there was a bit of chaos and confusion in capital markets. Oh no, you know, does this upend everything? Uh, then if I actually purchase these 81 bonds, will I have some form of protection? And for capital markets, this was like big news. Does this then depend on the individual central banks to decide where the where the pecking line of 81 bonds Somewhat, are? Yes. Okay, yes. so in the but, Swiss... But to be fair, in your paperwork for the 81 bonds, right, and there would have been something like 500 pages of documentation, there would be something embedded in there that tells you that you know, whether central banks have and it would be subject to regulation. So right. I'm sure there's some loopholes here. And so there. in the Swiss case, uh, they ha- they went to the fine print and, and sort of de- demoted the bond yes. bondholders to that level. But in Malaysia's case, Bank Nagara has said 81 bondholders will still be uh, Rank above. higher. Yes, but I, I like I like the press conference she gave. She was very clear also, right, about the stress test that, you know, Bank Nagara has imposed on banks and insurance, really to say, look, we are in actually a relatively healthy state and our total capital ratio for our bank stands about 18.8%, which is much higher than a 2008 global financial crisis. All right. On that positive note, then, uh, that's all we have from WTF on the morning run today. We are coming up to the 10 a.m. news bulletin and then we're handing over the baton to Enterprise. Have a good weekend, everyone. BFM 89.9. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.